Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. If you have questions about this faith or about this congregation, please don't hesitate to ask the friendly and knowledgeable people at the visitor table. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every human being. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left, welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and in the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our uh, call to worship is the famous Abbas Bridget's Grace, Abbas Bridget of Ireland, an ancient well-known personage. I should welcome the poor to my feast, for they are God's children. I should welcome the sick to my feast, for they are God's joy. Let the poor sit with Jesus at the highest place, and the sick dance with the angels. People do ask, how do you preach to a room full of people who are Unitarian Universalists, but they have their roots and their practices in Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, humanism, earth-based religions, Buddhism. We've got all kinds of backgrounds and practices here. What do you, what holds you together? And sometimes you can say, well, one of the things that holds this congregation together is our mission statement, and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation for uh, this morning and for lighting the candles is from the agrarian essays by the poet Wendell Berry. I take literally in the Gospel of John that God loves the world. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love. As so far as it is redeemable, that it can be redeemed by love. I believe that divine love, incarnate, indwelling in the world, summons the world always toward wholeness, which is ultimately atonement and reconciliation with God. As we enter into the silence together, we breathe deeply into that place in our hearts where we are who we are. It is in this place where we might speak to God as we understand God, where we might listen to the wisdom that is inside us, 
or where we might just find a stillness in following our breath in and out. We hold in our hearts this morning those who are ill or suffering, fearful. We especially hold in our hearts those who were hurt this week down at South By, their families. We hold in our hearts those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. As we enter the silence, we seek clarity, wisdom, and we are filled with gratitude. We are now invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, remembrance. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving kindness prayer, or metta meditation. We say this through three times. I'll say a line and you say it after me, should you choose to. The first time through, we say this for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time, we say it for someone we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time is a spiritual exercise. We say it for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. You know, at our auction, we, by we, I mean me, I offer a sermon topic. People can bid for the right to um, have a conversation with me about a suggested sermon topic. And Mike Leberkin won the bid, um, was one of the people who won the bid uh, this fall. And he wanted me to preach about redemption. So here we go. What I'm going to do right now is run through from zero to 60 in three minutes the major religions and their views on redemption. So because this is not very detailed and because um, I am not in the midst of all of those religions as a believer, it's going to be wrong.
In Hinduism, which is one of the most ancient religions still being practiced, a person throughout many lifetimes attains enlightenment and is able to get off the wheel of rebirth. Samsara is the situation where we are just on a wheel and we come back over and over and over again in various forms to learn various things and we have... um, levels through which we must pass, and at the end, we become one with being, which is present in everyone and in everything. At the end, once we're released from the wheel of rebirth, we can become one with everything. Now, in Buddhism, which comes out of Hinduism, much in the same way that Christianity comes out of Judaism, um, in Buddhism, it's very similar You attain enlightenment, and then you can be released from the wheel of rebirth. But some denominations of Buddhism, that's fundamentalist Buddhism. Now, some denominations of Buddhism say that you can go to the pure land at the end, that your soul goes to the pure land to be with Buddha. And some people say, some denominations of Buddhism say that there are these beings who attain enlightenment and yet choose to keep coming back to help teach other people, and those people are called bodhisattvas. And some people teach that your karma, which is the weight, the accumulated weight of all your deeds throughout many lifetimes, um, some people say that the bodhisattva's karma, which is very good, can be kind of spread around or donated like grace to those of us who have yet to attain enlightenment. In Christianity, redemption usually means having the consequences of your actions or the consequences of your innate sinfulness um, taken from you by the Redeemer so that you can go at the end to be one with God. You belong to God again. You've been separated from God, and now you are redeemed, purchased by the blood of the Redeemer to go be with God again at the end of your days. In Judaism, redemption is more for the people as a whole than for an individual. And redemption is spoken of as uh, being brought back from exile. You know, the Jewish people were exiled many times as the conquerors came and took them away to the conquering lands, and then they got... um, to go back to their own land, and that is redemption. And some some Jewish mystics talk about individual redemption as being brought home from the exile of your soul, from your soul's home. So what brings you back home is what redeems you. I want to go into... um, different kinds of Christianity now, because my training uh, is deeply, deeply, deeply within the realm of Christianity. You know, I grew up Presbyterian. There are many, 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 many ministers to the 1620s in my family, and so it's um, something I've been studying my entire life. And then I went to Princeton Seminary and studied it some more for three years, and then I practiced as a minister for 15 years. So... Um, 
it would be disingenuous for me to go into as much detail about other religions. And so I'm talking from inside uh, Christianity. And I want to tell you, because it's St. Patty's Day, I want to tell you about St. Patty's kind of Christianity and how redemption is different in that one from what redemption is in the Roman Catholic Christianity. So St. Patrick brought Christianity to Ireland. That's the story. And I want to tell you what the Ireland was like to which he brought Christianity. It was in the middle of the 5th century, around the year 450. Most of the people in Ireland were Celts, part of a vast group of tribes which had swept westward from Turkey, some people even say from India. And there are people who study the music of Ireland and the music of India and put them side by side and say, see, it's so clear that the origins of these people are with these people. Some say these Celts were the Galatians to whom Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. The Roman historians called them the Celtoi. They were fierce warriors. Men and women both fought in battle. And the way they would fight was naked and painted blue with their hair uh, made into spikes with lines. So it was white and spiked and blue. You can imagine the sight. You know, even in World War II, I think, or maybe it was World War I, the Germans called the Scott soldiers the ladies from hell in their kilts and their attitude. The religion of the Keltoi was of warrior heroes who were uh, legendary, half-divine, half-human, or both human and divine, warrior heroes. And when you died, you went under the hill with the fairy folk. So that hills, the fairies lived in the hills, and they took you after you were dead. Sometimes they took you while you were still alive. It was important not to be taken by the fairy folk because then you'd be under the hill for 450 years, but it seemed like five minutes. And when you got out, everybody you knew was dead, even their grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren, and you were kind of out of time and lost if you'd been in the fairy world for too long. The Celtic gods were not particularly benevolent or kind. Our idea of a loving God who speaks to you in kind, motherly, parental tones um, was not uh, an idea of the Celts. The Roman historians said that the Celts practiced human sacrifice, but other people say the Roman historians made that up to make it more okay to kill the Celts um, and that they didn't do human sacrifices. But we do know that in battle, once they killed their enemies, they cut off their heads and they brought the head home as an honored guest. And, you know, sometimes you go look at houses or you might live in a house that has a little niche in the wall and you think, oh, that's lovely. It's for a statue of the Madonna or something. Well, the Celts had the same niche, but it was for the head uh, of the enemy. And you would have dinner and the head would be there and you would imagine that it could speak to you. There were stories of, of the enemy's uh, head. 
just on special occasions. And there were some Christians in Ireland because the Roman Empire had tossed some Christians up there. Um, but uh, the Roman Empire was breaking up at this time. So especially the Christians in the far-flung parts of the Roman Empire were going back to their original religions, which for the Celts was paganism, and pagan just means the religion of the countryside. The religion of the countryside. You notice when the moon is full and when it's new. You notice when the days are short and when they're long. And that weaves itself into your religion. Christianity had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. Um, In 1313, the Edict of Milan, by decree of Constantine. And most British officials in the lower part of the British Isles were Christian. But when the empire began breaking down, many of them went back to their pagan roots. Their spirits in the rocks, spirits in the trees, spirits in the rivers. The spirits need appeasing, and the experts in speaking to the spirit world were the Druids. The Druids appear to have been a learned group of people in whose care was the oral tradition and knowledge of each tribe and clan. They frowned on writing in some way, or some people just said their writing was secret. Tales of heroes were memorized and sung by the bards. Some Druids were said to have the power of healing and killing in their poetry. They spoke codes and riddles, and they'd have poetry slams and riddle slams, and there were tales of someone just spontaneously combusting from being just hit with a really awesome verse of poetry. You won! It was into this arena that Patrick came. He had been born and raised in the Great Britain of Christian parents, and he'd been kidnapped by Irish raiders at 16 and made into a slave. And he was a slave in Ireland for six years, learning their ways. He escaped, made his way back home, and there he studied to be a priest, and he was made a bishop, and he requested to be sent back to Ireland to help convert the Celts to Christianity. The Druids fought him at every turn, but the Irish people, being familiar with warrior gods who were human and divine, they didn't have any trouble with Jesus. And they were used to all the paradoxes in Christianity, the three in one. They had the shamrock, and he used it to teach the Trinity. They were used to the idea of living forever, so they grasped eternal life. Um... They were used to the triple-faced goddess, the maiden, mother, and crone, so they were used to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pretty fast. But the reason I want to talk about Christianity as, as the Celtics, like the Celtic Christianity, is because it was so different from the Roman Catholic faith, in that uh, the Roman Christianity was, uh, had, was influenced by Augustine, who was a bishop an African bishop, and he had a 
Christian mom, but he didn't want any part of her religion. He had a mistress for 15 years who gave him a son. Then he got converted to Christianity. And what gave him the most trouble in being a good Christian was his sexuality. And so he decided that sexuality was the original sin. And he talked a lot about concupiscence. That is lust, my brothers and sisters. And the more concupiscence that is present at the time of the uh, conception of a child, the more original sin that child is born with. So the ideal way to conceive a child is dispassionately, kind of neutrally. That's the way you clean up the human race right there. How do the Celts escape this form of Christianity? A bishop's bad manners. There was a different bishop named Augustine who was assigned to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he called Patrick and his monks in so that they could all be on the same page. And Patrick and his monks went to visit Canterbury. They consulted a wise hermit before they went about whether they should follow this archbishop or not and become Roman Catholic Christians. And the wise man said, well, if this person treats you well, if this person has good manners, if this person stands to greet you when you get there, then follow him. But if he's a jerk, don't do it. So Patrick and his monks went to see Augustine, Archbishop of Canterbury, different Augustine. And he was arrogant and rude and did not get up. So they went home and ignored what he said. And so Celtic Christianity became the kind of Christianity where creation had a soul. Where women and men were both honored where the body was not yucky, where the will was not crippled, where sexuality was not filthy. And redemption was more that you were at home in the world and one with the world and in love with nature and drinking beer and singing and dancing. Very, very different kind of redemption from the you have to be perfect and you have to have your sins paid for and you shouldn't feel any lust any time, otherwise your children will be ruined. So I want you to know that modern-day liberal Christianity is getting back to the Celtic style. There is a theologian who used to be a um, Jesuit before he was tossed out of the Catholic Church. And he talks about original blessing instead of original sin. He teaches many of our Unitarian Seminary students in San Francisco. His 
school of thought is called creation spirituality. Matthew Fox is his name. There's a, a French theologian, Teilhard de Chardin, who was um, read widely in the 50s and 60s. And he said every atom has consciousness. A Jewish theologian named Martin Buber said, we must cultivate an I-thou relationship with nature, not an I-it relationship. So you would say as a child, I love my blanket who is my friend. I love my cat who is my friend. Not, I love that tree that is in my yard. I love that tree who is in my yard. That's an I-thou relationship. Even evangelical Christians are going green and thinking of stewardship of the creation as something that necessitates them treating the earth as well as they can. I want to close with a grace that Mike wrote, read a little bit of at the beginning. This is Brigid's grace. They call her the Abbess Brigid. She was a goddess before that, a saint after that. I should like a great lake of ale for the king of kings. I should like a table of the choicest food for the family of heaven. Let the ale be made from the fruits of faith, and the food be forgiving love. I should welcome the poor to my feast, for they are God's children. I should welcome the sick to my feast, for they are God's joy. Let the poor sit with Jesus at the highest place, and the sick dance with the angels. God bless the poor. God bless the sick. Bless our human race. God bless our food. God bless our drink. All homes, O oh God, embrace. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I know this rose will open. I know my fears will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.